Welcome to this week's live edition. We're back live here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Jake Novak. A lot of things to, to get to today, although our main topic, because how could this not be a main topic? Uh, I, like probably many of you listening, have either heard about or saw the new documentary film, Three Identical Strangers. I saw it this weekend, and I, you just couldn't, I, there's no way I could do a show about anything else after having seen that. Just no way. So I'm going to be getting to that, and don't worry, I will not be spoiling the movie for probably the most of you who haven't seen it. Like I said, I think many of you have seen it, or have at least heard about it. Uh, but I found a way to talk about the movie without spoiling it. But first, I want to get to a couple of things, just because, again, this is a, the live Novak Now edition. Just a couple of stories that you may have missed that are, are of interest to all of us, uh, most of them coming out of Israel. Um, first is a cultural story, but this being a... Jewish Music Network, for the most part, the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, I want to get to the story of the Eurovision contest. Now, as some of you may know, Israel won the Eurovision contest. I think it was its fourth overall win. This is a big deal in Europe, and in obviously some non-European countries who are allowed to participate in the European Eurovision contest. So Israel won with a very quirky song called Toy, sung by a very quirky singer. And when you win the Eurovision contest, you get the right to host the competition the next year, which is a big deal, presumably brings in some tourism, brings in some international attention, stuff like that. So Israel won it, and there had been an issue over the last couple of months about what, that, whether that would really happen or not. Uh, now, some of this was the usual boycott Israel nonsense, but it turned out that the biggest roadblock was the Eurovision organization requires a certain amount of money deposited into their television account before you can officially get the rights to uh, broadcast. And now, usually this is never a problem for anybody, but the network that's going to be covering it in Israel couldn't get the money because they, their budget had already been approved. I mean, this sounds like every Israeli government bureaucratic story that we're all used to. Uh, and before you knock it, remember that I'm convinced that Israeli government bureaucracy is one of the biggest reasons why Israel became such a leader in the tech world. For those of you who remember how long it used to take to get a landline when you lived in Israel, I'm convinced that was like a huge reason why Israel became a leader in mobile phone technology, because they just didn't want to wait anymore on the goddamn paperwork. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and a typical bureaucrat, not, not, unfortunately, not all the bureaucracy has been swept away. And this was a bureaucratic problem. They had to go through a whole Knesset legislation thing. Anyway, they're going to lend them the 12 billion euros that they needed to deposit in the, Euro, in the Eurovision account. And as of now, it's a go. I predict a few more bumps along the road. But as of now, it's a go for May 2019. And that'll be a big deal when Israel hosts the, uh, the Eurovision competition. So that'll be exciting. Uh, and that's, gee, it's only about 10 months away, less than 10 months away. So time to get working on your song, time to get working on the production and everything else like that. So that's one bit of interesting news. Another bit of interesting news, this is a story that we've talked about, and I've talked about on my uh, Twitter feed a few times. Again, you can follow me on Twitter. Please do. At JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle. At the, you know, the, the at sign, JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle. Um, I've talked about this for a while. You know, so again, huge overriding story, and I've done entire editions of the show about the overriding story about the Saudis continuing to normalize relations with Israel and how that's changed the equation in so many ways, not only between those two countries, but the whole world. Um, one of the things that the Saudis have done is they now are allowing certain airlines flying to and from Israel to fly over Saudi airspace. And the most important route that that affects 
is the Israeli Israel to India route. You know, Israel and India do a lot more trade partnering. Israeli soldiers tend to take time off in India after their initial enlistments. Uh, there's been a growing relationship between the two countries, which I have always felt was very logical. Two democracies sort of surrounded by non-democratic countries, uh, threatened by Islamic uh, radicalism for centuries, or at least a, a century or so, these kinds of things. Um, are keep Israel and India much more in common than, than not in common. And uh, for a long time, that relationship was artificially hampered. Um, but Saudi Arabia allowing this flight to go over Saudi Arabian airspace has cut the flight time between Israel and I India by two hours. You know, and by the way, the flight is, about, is similar to the U.S. to Israel, you know, New York to, to Israel flight. So imagine if you're Israel to, you know, to JFK flight were two hours shorter. That would be really nice, right? Like that, that last two hours in the flight when you're getting a little frantic and, and you're sitting there waiting and it's a little annoying, uh, maybe you could cut that out. The problem is El Al has not been included in this deal. El Al still has to fly the longer route. And El Al was considering or was on the way to sort of suing the government, some kind of official complaint to stop the Air India flights. And they backed down today or over the weekend. They backed down on that, probably with the understanding that if they waited and kept their mouth shut, maybe they would get this shorter route too. Or maybe they're going to get it without any kind of fanfare. Who knows? The fact that it's the official Israeli airline probably is the only reason. Maybe the Saudis who are looking to do this incrementally, you know, now they're going to allow Air India. Maybe next month or next year they'll allow, allow the fly over their airspace. But you get the picture. They're just trying to, I think, do this incrementally. And El Al seems to have gotten the message on that. So El Al back down over the weekend. They will continue to fly the longer route to India. They were really never, didn't seem like they were going to get the shorter route anyway. But now Air India will be, you know, the, the, the chances of that route being pulled for, for some reason seem, seem smaller. So this, this improvement, at least for Air India and for the people using it, is going to, it seems safe for now. Uh, the last story comes out of the general Middle East, and it's something I want everyone to pay a lot of attention to, because again, I think this is... Uh, a huge, huge story, which is not getting enough attention in the media, not getting enough attention among the Jewish community. Uh, the fact is that the Iranian government now is in a full-blown economic crisis uh, of its own making, clearly of its own making. We know that. But it's getting, getting worse. And the protests on the streets of Iran are continuing to, to continue. <laughs> continue you know, they continue. They are, some of them are very intense. I've spoke to you on this program before here on Novak Now about how a huge theme in these protests is anger at foreign military spending when their domestic economy is not strong. In other words, they're upset that the government is spending money on military adventures in, with Hamas, with the Houthis in Yemen, with Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon. They're sick of it. They want that money spent at home. You can imagine the same would be the case in any country, really, if people knew how much Iran is, is spending overseas. And that spending by Iran doesn't seem to be ratcheting down, even as the economy gets worse. This is a case of a regime in Iran that sees every, every problem as a nail, and they're the hammer. They seem to think that every problem can be solved if they boost the Islamic militarism and the Islamic, you know, the Islamic fanaticism. So this is coming to a head, and this is a, an aspect of the story I want everyone to pay a little bit more attention to if you, if you aren't already. The Iranian currency, the rial, has now hit an all-time low. And for those of you who remember your history about Weimar Germany, one dollar is now worth 100,000 rial. Okay? So to get one dollar's worth of goods, 
the Iranians need to, you know, pull out that wheelbarrow like the Germans in the 19, you know, 1920s and early 30s and, and get some and get and get a hundred thousand dollar, hundred thousand real for one dollar's worth of goods. Uh, as you know from history, regimes, governments cannot survive with that kind of hyperinflation, with that kind of devaluation of their currency. And for those of you who think this means war, this means widespread death, you know, Iran hasn't always followed that playbook. They certainly follow that playbook overseas, as I just said. They certainly like to start wars and violence overseas. But remember that the Shah, who had a pretty repressive regime, unfortunately, listen, he was relatively friendly to Israel, he was very friendly to the United States, but he had a repressive regime, which, brought, which helped bring him down, unfortunately. Had he been a little bit more open to society, we probably would have not only avoided the downfall of Iran, a huge shot in the arm to Islamic fundamentalism over the last 39 years. But that said, uh, the Shah went down peacefully. He left the country. The soldiers, there was not, there was not a widespread deadly civil war in Iran. Um, and I think it's possible that we could have a relatively peaceful overthrow of this regime as well for a number of reasons. Um, but that's getting ahead of myself just a little bit. W what I want everyone to understand, though, is that if, if this regime comes down, it will be because of the economy, because the econ you know, when you cannot sustain an economic equilibrium throughout a country and your currency is now worth, you know, nothing, uh, there's just very little to prop up the regime. The re people, people start leaving, people who can't, you know, people who still have some wealth will start leaving. There's all kinds of things that happen. So... Pay attention to this if you can. Uh, I've been watching it. The real keeps going lower and lower. So now we're at 100,000 real to the dollar. If it gets you know, to 200,000, I mean, it's, at this point, it, does it really matter? I mean, can you really split the hair this, this many times? I really don't know. But this is important stuff to, um, to consider and to follow along uh, with the story in Iran. So those are, those are just a few stories right now that are sort of developing right now here on this Monday, July 30th. Again, this is Jake Novak. You're listening to Novak Now on the Nahum Siegel Network. But my main topic today, because how could anything else be my main topic? After having seen, after having seen this brilliant, brilliant and incredibly gut-wrenching documentary called Three Identical Strangers, it is playing in wide release right now, at least in the New York area it is. I'm sure it'll be available in the rest of the country and hopefully even in Israel pretty soon. Uh, here's the problem, folks. The movie just came out. <laughs> I think this weekend or last weekend was its first weekend so I don't want to go into the plot of this movie too much. And so I say to myself, how can I really touch upon the importance of this film without giving away the plot, without giving, without, you know, without, without the spoilers? So I'm going to do that by, in this way. I am going to focus on some of the very powerful themes of the movie. Uh, and you'll just have to trust me that these are themes in the movie. And this will not ruin the film for you. Uh, but it, these are things that really need to be discussed because this film is, is important. And I think that in the few weeks when more and more, when more people have had a chance to see the film, uh, I will revisit, re revisit this with, uh, with more specific details about the story of the film. So I'm not going to tell this, the story of the film other than what you can guess from the, the title. Here, I mean, this is all I'm going to say about the plot of the film is that there were three uh, triplets who were separated at birth adopted by three different families, and then they found each other. That's all I'm going to say about the plot of the film. That is not something I'm giving away. That's in the poster. That's in the movie commercial, the whole thing. So that's as far as I'm going to go with that. So what are some of the themes that this movie, which made this movie so profound, other than the human interest story? I mean, boy, you know, separated at birth, finding a triplet, that's 
pretty human interest. And of course, when the story, and again, I don't want to break any giveaway, anything like that, but you can imagine the excitement that was around that. But there are so many important themes that were surrounding this film as this story fleshed its way out. And again, this is a documentary. This is not a dramatization or you know an actor actor portrayed film that get the real people here. So the first thing, obviously, that this movie starts to tug at you and starts to give you this this emotion, and this is really important that we can discuss off the topic of the movie in, in, in specifically, is the power of family. You know, even if we're not raised together, even if we don't spend a lot of time with family members or there's a separation, and this in this case, I think in America specifically, when we talk about family separation, unfortunately, we're often talking about fathers who leave the family for one reason or another usually divorce, sometimes out-and-out out abandonment. For those who think that, oh, well, this person was only physically in, this per in a child's life or a sibling's life for a short time, or they never even it's no big deal. It's a sad story, but it's not, it doesn't have a daily emotional repercussion or a physiological repercussion. Well, not true. Okay, And, and you didn't need to see this movie to know that. There is a physical connection that a person has with an immediate family member that if that becomes taken away, if that is taken away either by an abandonment, a separation, an untimely death, these things really stay with us, not only in a mental way and in our hearts, but in a real physical way. They have a physical manifestation. And it's profound to see it any time in your life when you do see it. So that's, that's one topic that, that really hits you very hard in this film. The second thing... And, and this, is the, this is the roughest part of the film, I think, for me, and the roughest topic that it brings up. And again, I will not talk about it in the context of this film, but let's talk about it in a general concept. And that is the general concept of Chilol Hashem, which literally means the desecration of God's name. In practical terms, it usually means when a Jew says, does something embarrassing. And I don't mean embarrassing like he jumps off the high dive and his, and his swimming chunks fall off. I mean something embarrassing, a crime, a terrible act, and it's public becomes public. So, you know, we, we've, we, we know what that means. Even if you're not very religious, you might have heard the term Chilol Hashem. Even if you're not very familiar with that term, you certainly probably, if you are a Jew, you probably know what that feels like when a Jew gets, you know, usually a great example, unfortunately, is Jews getting hauled off for a financial crime. Uh, I think we've experienced it a lot in the last several months with the Me Too uh, scandals that have been breaking out. So many Jewish men implicated. And I don't think that's because they're Jews. I don't think Jews are more likely to, to harass women or commit sexual misconduct than anyone else. I really don't believe that. However, if you're going to focus on the financial industry and the entertainment industry, two industries where Jews have had tremendous success and are in so many prominent roles, well, then you're going to net a lot of Jews. And unfortunately, these are industries where sexual misconduct and sexual harassment are, are very common and still are. So just in the last few days, we've heard new allegations against CBS CEO Leslie Moonves, who is Jewish. For those of you who didn't know, of course, you know about Harvey Weinstein. And we've known about so many other Jewish characters in, in, in the um, entertainment industry who have been netted by this. So Hillel Hashem, unfortunately, I never have to go too far from today's front pages to find a Hillel Hashem. And we know how that is. So the question about Hillel Hashem, it's one of, this is one of the great arguments that Jews, I think, have among themselves over the centuries. And it's one of those things where I think it really defines us as a community. 
Now, you will hear a lot of people, this is a very typical argument, and one that I used to make as a teenager, so you can see where I'm going, I'm going to refute myself, because no one ever refers to arguments that they make as a teenager and say, yeah, it's still true. So, yes, uh, this is an argument I used to make as a teenager. I used to talk about how, and I'm sure a lot of you do also, when Jews do something bad and commit a crime, it increases anti-Semitism, it makes the anti-Semites come out of the woodwork, yada, yada, yada. Well, I don't think that's true anymore. I believe that anti-Semitism comes from something that has nothing to do whether Jews do, do or not do. I think that anti-Semitism is a hatred of Jews just for existing and for what Jews basically stand for in their best self. You know, Jews, unfortunately, may not live up to the Jewish standards of, of, of uh, behavior very often or all the time. But it's the fact that we set those rules up in the first place. We created an idea of meritocracy, created an idea of, of, of morality that was stronger than whoever the king was at the time or whoever the president is at the time. The anti-Semites have always hated that. They've hated it either because they don't want to live up to any moral, moral code. And again, I'm not saying this because Jews live up to the moral code all the time. They just hate the fact that the Jews created it and represent it. So I've always believed, uh, at least ever since I was a teenager, I've believed since I, I was in my 20s, that Jews are hated just as much when they do good things as when they do bad things. So when Israel goes and, and rescues another country from an earthquake or a flood, absolutely they should do it. But if they're doing it, and I know this is not the reason why they do it, but if people think that Israel is doing it so that they can cut down on anti-Semitism, not only is that, is that the wrong reason to do it, but it's also not, it's not going to be successful. Sometimes the anti-Semites, I'm convinced, hate us even more when we do good things. So don't think about it in that way. So the idea of Chil Hashem, to me, is a little bit flawed in the way that we think of it. It's kind of like the way I feel about social justice. Either something is just or it isn't just. When people use the term social justice, they usually mean socialism. I don't trust anybody who puts qualifiers or modifiers over justice. Even, even above the Supreme Court, where that famous engraving, equal justice under law, why isn't it just justice under law? If justice isn't equal, then it's not justice. Okay? So Chilol Hashem, if someone is committing a crime or committing a sin and it's public, I don't know if it desecrates God's name any more than if it were done in private or if it was done by a non-Jew. So again, this might be a radical idea of mine. I think it's based on a lot of data and, and fact. But the idea being that if one is doing something or not doing something or covering something up or not covering up something based on what they feel the anti-Semites or non-Jews might think of us, you're getting it all wrong. Now, if the only thing that really, really motivates you to be a mensch, to be a decent person, to follow the commandments, or to just be a decent person in a secular sense, is you're worried what the non-Jews are going to say. And if that's the only thing that keeps you on the straight and narrow, then okay, go with that. But to me, that's pathetic. You should want to do what's the right thing because it's the right thing to do, no matter what the non-Jews or anti-Semites think. We're not here in the, um, in, in, you know, in, in impression, the good impressions business. You know, we're supposed to be, you know, a light unto the non-Jews, but because we want to be that, not because that's the, that's the end goal. That is a happy side effect of doing the right thing. So anyway, this film, again, I'm not going to give you the details why, uh, but... Chilol Hashem becomes a very, very powerful theme in this movie, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because it's a true story. So there is a major amount of Chilol Hashem that comes barging through this film in a number of places. And it is so unfortunate. So unfortunate that that happened. But let me talk about something good here for a second before I get to what I think is really the biggest, biggest message of the film to me, both not 
only for me personally, but I think for everyone. One good thing I want to say about this movie, uh, and again, it's, it's a fantastic movie. I just want, I, I'm talking about it from a positive sense, something that no one has to feel bad about. The filmmaking expertise of the documentary filmmakers in this movie is off the charts, ex expert level fantastic. Now, this story was a documentary, as I told you. And the story is so fantastic and interesting. You could just put a bunch of clips of the news coverage of this story over the years, and that would be a pretty good documentary. Honestly, you could be an extremely lazy documentary film filmmaker and make a good movie out of this thing. But these guys who made this movie over, I don't know how many years, uh, and they're documenting about, documenting about 58 years worth of history, but I guess their story sort of begins in 1980. But it's a lot of years of footage here. Uh, but the fact is that these guys made a tremendous documentary using an incredible filmmaking technique. And again, not to be a spoiler, but let's put it this way. They carry you along the story here. There are some shocking things that happen in the story as you go along. And not only do they play that out well for you so that the shock and the interest and the just the emotional impact hits you at its at, at the height of, you know, of its ability, but they go back to earlier parts of the film showing you the scene, th scenes and, 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 and um, clips that you had seen earlier in the film. With, and now you see them again with your added knowledge and you realize, whoa, I was taken for a ride on some of this just like the rest of the country. But it is just unbelievable. Very, very strong filmmaking, important filmmaking. Uh, the way that a documentary, ha a, a, a documentary that I just have not seen documentaries made this way before. And, you know, documentaries used to be a real snooze. The, you know, the major studios used to not touch them with a 10-foot pole. They didn't get a lot of distribution. I'm thinking about the 70s and even into the 80s. Now documentaries are much more common and popular because they've been an infotainment uh, they've been given the infotainment treatment. And, and this documentary got that too in some ways. But like I said, it's such a fantastic story that it's sort of begging for the documentary treatment, but it was very, very well done. So kudos to the filmmaking, uh, uh, the filmmakers. They did a tremendous job. And again, I'm talking about the movie Three Identical Strangers. That is my main topic for Novak Nassita here on the Nahum Siegel Network as we wrap up the last seven or eight minutes of the show today, live here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Um, talking about this film, not giving away the spoilers uh, in any way, but letting you know that it touches and makes huge points about the importance of family connections, even when you don't see that family member for decades and decades and decades. The very, very important uh, theme of Hillel Hashem, which comes unfortunately barreling through in this movie in a number of places, and I wanted to make that point about how Hillel Hashem, I think is not quite understood even by the people who are very religious or think about it all the time. Chilol Hashem is a little bit different than what they might think. And then, of course, I'm making this point about filmmaking. But the number one point I want to make, the number one theme that I think this movie really hit for me, and I think will hit for a lot of the viewers, is this understanding of personal responsibility, the importance of personal responsibility. And, you know, those of you who have read my columns either on CNBC.com or all over you know, a number of different publications, you know that to me, personal responsibility is, is the key to civilization. You can have a repressive regime. You can have a liberal regime. You can have a regime of any kind. You can have any kind of society you want. But if personal responsibility is not something that is considered an ideal among the public, the civilization won't survive. And what's really, really disturbing to me and frightening to me about politics in America is that politics in America, after reaching a point I felt in the early, in the mid to late 90s, I really felt that politics in America had started to shift more towards promoting personal responsibility than ever before. 
which is really a great thing because politicians usually have to work against personal responsibility. Because after all, if the public is being personally responsible more and more, who the heck needs the government and the politicians to, to tell them anything? You know, we're sort of self-sufficient in that way. And we were actually getting there. For example, the best example being when Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich agreed on reforming welfare and making people having to do some form of work to get their welfare benefits. They didn't call it the Welfare Reform Bill. They called it the Personal Responsibility Act of 1996 or 1997. I don't remember the year, but again, I said to the mid to late 90s. So we were getting somewhere, folks. We were really getting somewhere in America. And then you had the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And then you had all kinds of doc, the dot-com bomb. And then you had economic problems. And when, and, and when these kinds of problems start to multiply, the finger pointing and the opportunism start to come out of the woodwork all over the place. And personal responsibility in this country has not recovered to that level. We just don't hear American politicians, anyone, talking about how personal responsibility is the most important thing. And by the way, I, I include little things like, not a little thing, but, but things you might not think are actually connected to it, like gay marriage. The, the, the gay marriage movement, also a huge blow to the personal responsibility movement. Huge blow, because what they wanted to do in the gay marriage movement is not just get a situation where they weren't punished or singled out. They wanted to be celebrated. In other words, they weren't going to consider themselves married until the Supreme Court said so. I, you know, I don't understand that. If Jews wanted to, you know, if Jews, if Jewish marriage were outlawed in this country, would it not? Would we not consider ourselves married if, in, unless the Supreme Court said so? I mean, really, I, I don't think that they would stop fighting for some kind of secular recognition. But there were people who actually felt that way. So, in other words, it's just a big lean on government all the time, and personal responsibility has gone into really a, a low ebb in this country, which is so dangerous for civilization, no matter where you stand politically. Unfortunately. I believe the left has really, really embraced this lack of personal responsibility movement with both hands. But it's not good for them either. It's not good for them either. So I wanted to make that point. This film, again, without giving away the, the, the details, really gives you some examples of the shirking of personal responsibility. And in one case, I'm happy to say, at least an opening where somebody in the film starts to explore the possibility of personal responsibility, which I found to be a redeeming factor for that particular person. But again, without giving away details of the story, and I haven't done that for Three Identical Strangers, all I've done is sort of pound the table and tell you to go see this documentary. Please see it. It's fantastic. It's playing all over the New York area and probably all over the country by now. But the idea of personal responsibility really comes in there in, in the sense that you have certain people in this film, and these are real people, and this is a documentary. There are certain people in this film who are clearly shirking and seem completely actually even unaware of the very concept of personal responsibility, even at the highest stakes. They're not, they don't conceive it, they don't even seem to recognize it, and they certainly don't adopt it on themselves. And then you have some people who do take some form of personal responsibility, which, which like I said, is somewhat redeeming. So again, in this new film, Three Identical Strangers, which I, which I really highly recommend. And again, how could this show, how could today's edition, live edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network be about anything else after, you, after I've seen this movie? That's how powerful this film was. Once you see it, you'll say like, oh yeah, Jake had to do this. <laughs> and not only because there's a tremendous amount of Jewish content in this film, there's a lot of Jewish content in the film, by the way. Uh, very, you know, pr pretty much everybody p depicted in the film is Jewish. So that's, that's one thing. 
but there's other Jewish themes throughout, throughout the movie. But again, it really hits on family. It hits on the idea of Hillel Hashem. It hits down the idea of just how expert, keen filmmaking can make an even already fantastic story even better. And then finally, and through many parts of the film, the idea of personal responsibility really starts to come shining through. Even though in most cases throughout this film, we see examples of people who are shirking personal responsibility. And you can see how dangerous that is, even in the lives of the people, you know, the relative handful of people throughout this movie. So again, I really, really urge you to see it. Three Identical Strangers. I saw it um, at the AMC Lowe's Raceway. I know it's playing there. I know it's playing in a lot of places around New York and certainly in Manhattan and probably around the country. See it and you'll see why these, these themes are so important. And in a few weeks when more and more people have had a chance to see it, I promise we'll start getting into some of the details of it. And maybe, maybe, maybe we'll even get a guest, someone who was involved in the making of the film or depicted in the film, because this is an important, important film that touches on so many important political, social, and religious issues. This is Jake Novak. This has been this Monday, July 30th, live edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week. Thank you.